You're listening to a podcast by Church on the Move in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hey, wherever or however you're listening to this, our hope is that this message is encouraging, it's challenging, and it inspires you to take your next step with Jesus. Thanks for listening, and let's check it out. As a young parent, I learned something, and I'd like to take credit for it, but someone else taught me. They taught me about the importance of never creating a vacuum. And I'll explain how I did that, especially when my kids were little. But I carried this philosophy with me all the way up to the time my kids left the house. When you discipline your kids and they do something wrong, you correct them, and and that's good. You, You need to do that. But too many parents never do anything positive. And so I would tell my boys, pick up the toys. I'm going to come back up here in a few minutes and check to see if you cleaned up your room. And so a few minutes later, I would come up and check the room. And if they'd picked up everything, I would start clapping. Now, they're two and three years old. They're really small. And I would jump up and down. And they'd get so caught up in my exuberance, the the three of us would just be bouncing around, me and Whit and Gabe. We're, We're jumping up and down. And I'm saying, yeah, you obeyed, you obeyed, you obeyed. And I know some people thought I was crazy. But I followed this philosophy because I saw this in God. You know, when you go back to the very beginning, to the Garden of Eden, we're so negative in the way we think the only tree that we see in the middle of the Garden of Eden is the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. And and so a lot of people look at that and they think, okay, God's about thou shalt not. No, keep reading right there in the same place. It says the tree of life was also in the middle of the garden. So God didn't just give a commandment, don't eat the fruit of the tree of life or tree of knowledge, good and evil, but instead eat the tree of life. That's how God flows. For every thou shalt not, there is an even more powerful do this instead. Now, as my kids got older and they're teenagers and they would get invited to parties at some kid's house that I was a little suspicious of and I didn't trust the parents because I saw bad judgment in them from time to time, I would say no to my kids. No, you can't go. But I also learned when I say no, Let's don't create a vacuum. I said, why don't you guys instead have a party here? And I'll pay for all the pizza and you have your friends over. And why don't you guys, I'll get out of the den. You guys can have the television. You can watch ESPN, what movie, whatever you want to watch. I'll get out of the way. But invite your friends over here. But no, I don't want you going there. So I never created a vacuum. And it made it so much easier to be a good parent because every time I said no, I had a do this instead. That's exactly how God works. Exactly how God works. You know, near the end of Jesus' ministry, uh, they came to Jesus with a question designed to trip him up. And they said, Master, what is the great commandment? What is the great commandment? And what's the most important commandment? And Jesus said, well, here it is. He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the second one's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the man said, you've well said. Most people would go to the thou shalt nots. Jesus didn't. 
Because if you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, you're not going to take His name in vain. If you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, you're not going to worship idols. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to commit adultery or steal from him or covet what he has. So the, the positives are more important than the negatives. That doesn't mean the negatives don't have a place, but it means that the positives are far more important. Now, this is what I find in the church. When it comes to the subject of money, we've had a tendency to major more on the dangers of money, the negatives of money, and to be sure, they're in the Scripture. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, Paul said to Timothy. So there are negatives in the Scripture about money. But what happens is when we focus so much on the negatives we overlook the fact that there are enormous positives in the Scriptures about money. The Bible is the greatest single book on money ever written. There's nothing like it. It teaches us how to make money fairly, equitably. It teaches us business ethics. It tells us how God wants us to treat the people we trade with. It tells us how we deal with employees or employers. It tells us about saving. There is so much in the Scripture. When we read this little statement in the book of Numbers 13, that the land is a land of milk and honey, people think that's just some symbolic, figurative term. No, it's not. It is a description of the economy of the land that God was going to take the children of Israel to. A land that flows with milk, what does that mean? There is an enormous amount of grass in this country. And since most of the world's people in those days were uh, uh, agrarian, they, they farmed or they were shepherds, uh, God was saying, you will find all the pasture you could ever imagine in this country. It's a land that flows with milk. But the honey is symbolic of there will also be all kinds of cultivated fields and bottomlands, and that's where the honey comes from because wherever you've got the crops, you've got pollination, you've got bees. And, and so the land that flows with milk and honey is a land of pasture, shepherds, and farmers. That's what God was saying. Now, the town I grew up in out in West Texas was just like that. We had huge pasture lands and we had lots of farms. Those two things were the basis of our economy. There were merchants who built businesses in our town, barbers, bankers, all kinds, doctors, dentists, all kinds of other people who came along to support that. But what made the town happen in the first place? The pastures and the farms. Those are the two things that built the economy. And so when the Bible describes Canaan as a land that flows with milk and honey, that's an economic statement. It's God saying to Israel, I have an economy for you. We ignore stuff like that. We read right over it. We don't think God has any interest in it. And what I want to do is take you through a seven-week study to show you how to think right about money. When you think right about money, you will quit thinking wrong about money. If all I did, or any other teacher for that matter, were to come to you and say, don't think wrong about money, 
Don't think wrong about money. Don't think wrong about money. What if I said this? Don't think about elephants for the next 30 seconds. Don't think about that big old long trunk that reaches around. Don't think about those big old wavy ears. Don't think about those legs that are as big as a tree trunk. Every one of us were thinking about an elephant. That's what happens. When we teach people all the don'ts, they inevitably drift to the don'ts. And they separate God from their money. And we won't, when we don't teach people about the do's with money, inevitably people separate God and money. And they think in order to prosper, I have to forget God. God can't be a part of my economy. He can't be a part of my banking system because God, after all, is against money. And that's what we've done in the church. And I want to show you from the scriptures, there is a tremendous amount of instruction about how we make money. And over the next several weeks, I'm going to show you that money flows in channels. I want to show you that there are four primary resources. Money is not one of them. You don't start then with money. You start with a primary resource. I'll show you what they are. And all of us have a, a primary resource. And I'm going to show you things about saving. I'm going to show you things about the way you trade and do business. I'm going to show you how you get ideas and how God brings you streams of income. Do you know that Abraham had three separate streams of income? Those things that God describes about Abraham are not just a description of his wealth. They are descriptions of how Abraham made his money. I'm going to show you clearly in the Bible how Abraham did it. And the, there's a good reason for this. I want to take away the mystery, the mystery of making money. Because when you have mysterious ideas about money, it will always enslave you. You'll never have enough. Money doesn't need to be a mystery to you. You need to see the light of it. So let's go to where Jesus took us first. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. Here's what he said. Do not lay up for yourselves. Underline that in your Bible. Mark it. If you if you got a pen and paper right now, just take this and write down for yourselves. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up, and again, those two words, for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus said that these treasures are for yourselves. He didn't say God didn't care about your treasure. That isn't what he said. The idea that a lot of people walk away with from, from this teaching is that God doesn't care about your treasure, but God exactly said, uh, I care about your treasure. He says, don't lay up for yourselves treasure on the earth. He's saying, don't put it out here where it can be stolen. Put your treasure in a place where it can come back to you. That's what he's saying. So laying up treasure in heaven keeps your heart in the right place. Now, the Bible isn't teaching us that God has no interest whatsoever in anything that is for yourself. The Bible is teaching us that instead we are to have a God-first attitude. I want to read you a story. Now, you've probably heard this story. It's the story of Elijah who was sent to the land of Sidon in Phoenicia. 
And there's a little village there called Zarephath. And God has told Elijah during this time of great famine, there is a widow woman there who will take care of you. I don't know what he thought. Maybe he thought she had a huge warehouse full of food. But at least by the time he got to the village, he learned that was not the case. So he gets into the village and he sees this woman and she's going out to gather some sticks and she's going to make a little fire and she's going to eat her last meal with her son and then they're going to die of starvation because they have no more food. She's a widow. She's destitute. She has no way to take care of her son. She's down to her last meal. Elijah sees her, and this is what he says. Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. Because she told him all she had was one last meal. But make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterward, make some for yourself and your son. Do you see those two words? Here they are again. Jesus used them in Matthew 6, and here's Elijah using them about 700 years before Jesus' time. And he's saying, God wants you to have something for yourself. Just put God first. So she does it. She makes the cake for Elijah. And can I tell you, that's not a miracle because she already had that food in her pot full of flour and her cruise full of oil. She already had that food. So the food that she gave to Elijah was not the least bit miraculous. It is obedience. So she obeys God with what she has. Here's where the miracle comes in. She goes back to the same place, to the flour barrel and the cruise of oil, and they're full again. Now she has a new supply. That's the miracle. The first miracle didn't go to Elijah. The first miracle went to the widow and to her son. And that tells me something about God, that when we put God first, God invests the resources of heaven into us. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach us. He's trying to say to us, have treasure in heaven for this life, for yourselves. People have this crazy notion that treasure in heaven is only good for when you die and you get to heaven and Jesus comes to thank you for supporting his kingdom. That's not true. This woman had treasure in heaven. I want to ask you this question. Where did she get the food that she would eat for the next several years till this famine was over? Where did she get that food? Every time she went back to that barrel of flour and that cruise of oil, there was enough there for another meal. So where was God keeping her food? He didn't give her a warehouse full of food. He from heaven supplied her need. When she needed it, it was there. Do you know whose prosperity that sounds like? That sounds like the prosperity of Jesus. Do you know that Jesus did all of his banking in heaven? This idea that Jesus was poor, that Jesus had nothing. That's one of the craziest ideas I've ever heard. Jesus was an incredibly prosperous person, but he didn't have a huge bank account on this earth. He had what he needed when he needed it. I mean, look at the times that he taught his disciples to go catch fish. And they had nothing, but they'd go fish the way he told them to fish. And 
They wind up with all kinds of fish. Or he's at a place where they have a multitude of 5,000 people and they don't have enough to eat. And he takes five loaves and two fishes and prays over it and he multiplies it, feeds the whole multitude. Or he's at a wedding and they have no wine. They run out and he turns the water into wine. You tell me Jesus was without resource? I'm telling you that he had tremendous resource but it wasn't here on this earth. Jesus did his banking in heaven. And so what he's telling us here is this is how I want to see you do it too. I want you to learn to look to heaven for what you need here in this life. Don't just wait till the next life. Here in this life, I'm going to supply your need. That's what I love. Now, a couple of illustrations about this very thing. Acts chapter 9, we're going to take a look at a woman who had great treasure in heaven. The Bible says, at Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and she died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him, weeping, showing the tunics and the garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out, and he knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Now, I have to show you here. This lady was raised from the dead because of her good works. She had treasure in heaven. That's what all of her friends are pointing to. They're saying, Peter, we can't live without this woman. She takes care of us all. We need her. She had treasures in heaven, and her treasures in heaven influenced this resurrection. If this were not the case, why then is the detail here? Now, if you're not sure about it, maybe I can convince you with this very next story. It's in, in the next chapter of Acts. Here it is in chapter 10. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment a devout man, one who feared God with all his household, and pay attention to this, he gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. Now, Cornelius was not a believer in Yeshua. He didn't even know about Yeshua. He did not know about the Christian faith. He's in Israel, but he's not yet heard the plan of salvation. He hasn't heard about Christ dying and rising from the dead and saving the world. He doesn't know that, but he does fear the God of Israel. And with the limited knowledge that he has, he's generous. And he has given loads of money to the poor people who live around him. He's been incredibly generous. And so the Bible says about the ninth hour of the day, about three o'clock in the afternoon, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid. But the angel said, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now, here's what the angel said. I'm here today because of your giving 
You, I'm paraphrasing, have laid up much treasure in heaven. Because you have treasure in heaven, you have influence with God. And I've come today to tell you something. And so what the angel says, send men to Joppa and send for Simon the tanner whose house is by the sea. He'll tell you what you must do. So Peter is given instructions as to how to send for a guy, or not Peter, but the Cornelius has been given instructions to send for the guy who's going to show him how to hear the words of salvation. Angels can't preach, not just yet. And so the angel tells Peter where to find, or tells Cornelius where to find the instruction. Now, the angel very clearly said it. I've come here today because of the alms that you've given. So almsgiving, generosity, being liberal with people, being generous toward God, those things are not just for the next life. It's not just for when we get to heaven. It has serious implications for how we live today. Now with these thoughts in mind, that God wants us to have treasure in heaven, let's go back to the sixth chapter of Matthew and pick up the next verses in sequence here. And you see Matthew 6, 22. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. Simply put, laying up treasures in heaven brings light into your understanding. Now the word for good or single, in your New King James, uh, this word is good. You have a good eye. Uh, that's very vague. What is a good eye? The old King James Version says it's a single eye. What is a single eye? Well, it's translated from a Greek adjective, which is haploos. And haploos is translated as bountiful, liberal, single, simple, and generous. That's W. Vine. So the Bible says if you have a generous eye, if you have a generous eye, your whole body is filled with light. So how can your eye be generous? Your eye is generous because you're looking at things in the right way. You have the right perspective. What are you thinking? You're thinking, God has become my partner in finance. I'm not in this by myself. I can look to the Lord. I am not dependent upon my stuff and my stuff alone. I am tapping into something that's His. His source of supply becomes my source of supply. And that's why we can be generous, because we're not doing this by ourselves. Now, this entire teaching, starting in Matthew 6, 19, going all the way to the end of the chapter, is based upon this way that God communicates. And what is this way of communication? God communicates both with thou shalt not, and he follows them with do this instead. Thou shalt not do this instead. Thou shalt not do this instead. Thou shalt not do this instead. God started the world with thou shalt not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil with but you shall eat the fruit of the tree of life. Thou shalt not, thou shalt do this instead. Jesus is following the same idea right here. Now, he said, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. He said, if your eye is selfish, that's Moffat's translation. Now, there's the negative. He started in this case with the positive, then he goes back to the negative. And here's why. He wanted to show us that when you follow the negative, when you're selfish, you're going to be divided. You will be confused about money. 
He says this in verse 24, Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. You'll either hate the one, love the other, or else you'll be loyal to the one, despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon. He's saying this, you can't put money first in your life. If you put money first in your life, there will be a continual struggle between money and God for your loyalty. And he said, win that battle. Put God first. He didn't say, don't think about money. He said, don't think about money first. This is what Elijah said to the woman. He said, make me a little cake first. Put God first. Let God be first. And that's what uh, Dorcas did. Tabitha did. She put other people first. She made those ladies clothes. That's what Cornelius did. He was considerate of the needs of the people around him. He put other people first. And God was generous with him. This doesn't say God doesn't want you to have anything for yourself. It says he wants you to put him first so you can have things for yourself. Now, put God first and you're going to be in good shape. Now let's go forward. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 33, but seek the kingdom of God first and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Now here's how most of God's children come away thinking. It's what they think. Put God first and you will never have to think about money. You may have even heard that said. You may have even heard a preacher say that. I think it's a little bit misleading. Here's another way of saying it. God will meet your needs without you having to think about money at all. I don't believe that. You do have to think about money, but you can't think wrong about money. And here's why I say that. There's no book anywhere that has an, as much instruction about money the right way as the Bible. The Bible is loaded with positive teachings about money, how money can be a blessing to you and to others. God teaches us how to make money. I'm going to show you in this seven-week series how money is made, how you convert things into money, how it happens, how the whole thing, how the whole process works. And when you do it the right way, it blesses you and all the people around you, and it blesses the kingdom of God. It's a good thing, not a bad thing. Some people have the idea that all we think about is spiritual things. You think about church and you think about prayer and you think about being good to people and think about good habits and reading your Bible. And if you do that, you'll never have to even pay attention to your money. That is not what the Bible teaches. But unfortunately, it's what we give people in the impression. We have the impression that, it, that, that money will just be a surprise to us. It comes to us surprisingly when we put God first. And, and I got to tell you, that's not true. Do you know when the angel Gabriel came to the Virgin Mary, told Mary, you're going to have a baby. And this baby is going to be really special. He's going to be of, he's going to inherit the throne of his father, David. He's going to have a kingdom that will never end. And he convinces her, okay, she's going to give birth to the Messiah. He pauses for just a bit, and she asks this question, how shall these things be? How? And this is where I see the church has failed. We've taught people, yes, God wants to bless you, but we never show people how stuff comes.
We don't because we don't know ourselves. Because preachers have been given money through the people that they preach to. They conclude that money comes as somewhat of a surprise. And money shouldn't be a surprise. If you're surprised by money, you won't have a lot of money. People who have a lot of money are not surprised by the money that comes to them. We're going to take the element of surprise away. The angel Gabriel did not rebuke the Virgin Mary when she asked the question, how can this be? In fact, I want you to think about that. What if Mary doesn't know how this prophecy is to be fulfilled? Does she go ahead and consummate her marriage to Joseph? You see, if the angel had not explained to her that she was going to give birth supernaturally, that the Holy Spirit was going to give her the ability to have this baby without the help of a man, that's what gave her the ability to follow through with this. She had to know the how in order to cooperate. And if you don't get taught the how, you can't cooperate with God. And that's why a lot of people do not know anything about money because they don't know how. I want to take that mystery away from you. Now, let's keep going here. Remember this thing that I taught you about how God works and about how he does the thou shalt not, but do this instead, okay? Well, in this teaching, Jesus does the same thing. Now, let's go back to Matthew 6, 25. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life. What you'll eat or what you'll put on is not the life more than food, the body more than clothing. Well, there's your first thou shalt not. Here's another one. Matthew 6, 27. Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? There's another thou shalt not. Here's another one. So why do you worry about clothing? That's Matthew 6, 28. Matthew 6, 31. Therefore, do not worry. Here in, in Matthew 6, 34, there are two. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Six times. In this passage, Jesus said, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, six times. The Bible tells us that six is the number of a man, a man without God. If Jesus said, don't worry, six times, he's trying to communicate to us that when you worry, you are telling God, God, I'm doing this all by myself. I am not trusting you. And boy, that's the wrong philosophy. So where is the contrast? We've got the don't do this, but where is the do this instead? Well, here it is. It's that verse, Matthew 6, 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So what Jesus is saying, in effect, that if you seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you are doing exactly opposite of worry. You are not worrying. So he's saying here that you are going to offset worry by thinking the way that God thinks about money. Now, you can't think the way that God thinks about money if you don't know what the Bible has to say about money. So Jesus is telling us, learn what the Bible says about money. That's what he's teaching when he says, seek first the kingdom of God. When he says, seek the kingdom, he's saying, read the book, learn the rules, learn the rules of the kingdom, learn the laws of the kingdom. And when you learn the laws of the kingdom, then you're going to learn how God's money system works and how you can bless your family. Now, I didn't say 
that God's going to make every one of you a millionaire. I don't believe that. But I do believe this, that God wants to take every one of us out of financial oppression. It doesn't mean you're going to drive a very expensive car, live in a mansion, but God wants you to be free of financial oppression. And I got to tell you, most people are not there. He wants to take you to a place where you're at peace about your money and you have tremendous confidence in him about how money flows. Now, I want to show you this six and seven thing again, this time from Matthew 20. Here's what Jesus said. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed, that's number one, to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, that's number two, and deliver him to the Gentiles, that's number three. They will mock him and scourge him and crucify him. Here are the six things. And look at the seventh. And the third day, he will rise again. You have the same thing in Matthew chapter 6. You have the six do not worries, but the seventh, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The seventh undoes the first six. In this passage in Matthew 20, the six things that they do to Jesus when they kill him, They're all completely wiped out. They're wiped out when God raises him from the dead. So the whole idea and philosophy behind this teaching is this. Instead of focusing all the time about the thou shalt nots about money, why don't we take a look at the do this instead parts? Why don't we take a look at the positive things that Scripture teaches about money? And keeping in mind, yes, there are some thou shalt nots. But if we focus on the do this instead, we're not going to have a problem with the thou shalt nots. Oh, I can't wait to get into this teaching. I'm going to show you so many things about money you've probably never heard before. And it's going to help you. Let me pray for you before we go. Father, in Jesus' name, I ask you to give our people, give our listeners the ability to rightly divide the word of truth, help them to be free from confusion, open their minds to the teaching of Scripture, and we thank you for supplying all of our needs according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Church on the Move podcast. You can stay connected with us at churchonthemove.com or by following us on Instagram. Our mission at Church on the Move is simple. We want to introduce people to the real Jesus by helping them know God, grow in freedom, discover purpose, and go make a difference in their communities. If you're in the Tulsa area, we would love to have you join us at any of our campuses this weekend. You can check out churchonthemove.com for campus locations and times. We hope to see you soon.